The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Here's Brandon. Welcome back to Old Space Show. I am Brandon, and this is my companion, Steven. Greetings. This series of Old Space Show follows the intergalactic swashbuckling escape antics of Raj Blake and his ruffian crew in the first season of Blake 7, which we actually have seven of them now. Today, we are discussing the fifth episode, The Web. web. When an unexplainable gravitational pull traps a liberator in an enveloping gossamer fungus near an unexplored planet, the legend of Callie's people, the Lost, becomes a reality. To break free from their web, Blake is asked to wipe out an entire species. This was directed by Michael E. Bryant. The Michael E. Bryant of Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, The Green Death, Death to the Daleks, Revenge of the Cybermen, and Robots of Death. Mm-hmm. Always somebody from who make it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, and, uh, and a favorite director of mine from Doctor Who. And, uh, he Easy also to see directed, why, yeah. <laughs> and he also directed this episode. We'll get into we'll get into stuff about the web. Oh boy! Right. As always, <sighs> we credit T- Terry Nation and praise mm-hmm. Chris Boucher. Yeah. Um, Starring Gareth Thomas, Sally Nevette, uh, Paul Darrow, Jan Chapel, Michael Keating, David Jackson, Richard Beale, Anya Marson, Deep Roy, and the voice of Peter Tidenham as Zen. So, yes. Uh, uh, also, uh, before, I mean, there, there are, speaking of Doctor Who people, uh, there yes. are Doctor Who people in this. Um, uh, Richard Beale was in. Uh, a couple different episodes in the gunfighters way back when. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Deep Roy, of course, has been in many, many things and was recently in at this point, uh, Towns of Wing Chiang. Uh, Miles Fothergill, you wouldn't might not recognize facially uh, from Doctor Who, but just prior to this, uh, in an episode directed by Michael E. Bryant, that being the Robots of Death, he played uh, SV7, the robot, the main villain robot. Okay. And you will, you will recognize that voice, that very calm, uh, assuring voice with a hint of evil behind it uh, in this episode. The second I yes. heard him say, go, oh, that's him, that's SV7. I, <laughs> I recognize that voice. Oh, perfect, perfect, Yeah. Do you think they're all like, hey, I was like, hey, what are you doing next week? Oh, I'm going over to Blake's. You want to come over to Blake's Seven? Yeah. Oh, in those days, you know, in the, the days pub. before internet yep. and, and like you, directors had their little companies of actors who they, they knew and they, they could rely on. And in a, you know, in a quick turnaround television situation, you, that's kind of what you need and what you want when you're sort of filling your cast list with reliable people who you know. Uh, what they bring to the table, and uh, yeah, Beckley Bryant is not uh, not 
above that, I know Douglas Camfield, who directed several Doctor Who episodes, had a had a little cadre of actors and stuff who he would do the you know use in and out, and I think Pennant Roberts as well, who directed the last episode. Yeah, so it it goes around in uh, in British TV at the time. Yeah, and it's something like you know it, we see that in films a lot of times with directors and people. Like I, I'm a big John Carpenter fan, and I always like to call a lot of his cast people the John Carpenter players. Yeah, but you know you take them film to film, but in TV it's a lot harder. But it can happen, mm-hmm. and the way the I mean the way the British uh, television functions is a lot different than the United States too. That they were able to do stuff, and there's a lot of, they could deal in the back room and be like, oh no, he's on this. Like, oh, we cast him. Why I ran him into ran into him in the hall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I worked with that guy. He's good. Let's get him. Sure. Hey, he bought me two pints. We're good. Yep. And this is and this is back when uh, when casting directors weren't really that much of a thing. When directors did most of their own casting, so yeah. they weren't going to outside agencies. They were literally going to I just worked with this person six months ago. They were good, or you know I gave them a small role in this. Maybe I'll do them a favor and have them have it with a bigger role uh, and on screen for this one. And you know that that's sort of how the business sort of worked. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. Like mm-hmm. just looking at all that and. I was just today talking about the <laughs> at my work. I was talking about that, telling people about the you know uh, how I love just talking about the the setup and strike down of sets in the BBC uh, studios and stuff. Like, oh, how many layers of paint are on those floors? Like, how many oh. feet up? How many feet up are those raised than when they first got built? It's amazing. There is a uh, DVD extra on the Doctor Who DVD of Carnival of Monsters, I think. So it made it its way onto the uh, season ten Blu-ray set as well, which is from the time from 1972. And it there's this guy who basically goes in and say, "Let's have a look at 24 hours at BBC Television Centre," and the amount of turnover that happens on the sets on everywhere. It's a factory. Mm-hmm. It's just a television factory. They they paint the floors, they do the sets, they let it dry overnight, they come in, they shoot the things, and then at the end of the night, well, we shot all the scenes of this set, and it's gone. And some of the bits of pieces of set they keep for future use, potentially, but like, as you say, the floors completely repainted. <laughs> they're not like chipped off. They're painted over. There, There is that play. And when you, when you watch that, you realize why uh, so much television from the early days was lost because they were just basically just churning new stuff out um and it's it's a it's a fascinating era of and so many oversights like i've read like letters from like barry letts to people about the like drapery stuff for like backgrounds from behind windows when they shoot inside and be like these were all cracked who pays attention to these? Like, barely we had to change our camera angles and all this. Like, well, we actually don't have a process, sir. We might come up with one now. We we moved the set with the scenery in, and we moved it out, and it got dinged, and we did our best, yep. and that's how it worked. Yeah, we probably TV, shouldn't man. roll these up. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, yeah, just, oh, it's, it's amazing. And they treated it like an office job, too, like nine to five. There yep. you go. Lights out. Yep. Done. Yeah. You need a job. Take your Look lunch. at us. <laughs> Look at us rush to discuss the web here on the podcast tonight. <laughs> they must come to us. <laughs> they must. <laughs> That's how we're going to get in with the web. Yeah. Uh, with Callie. Um, 
immediately up to no good on the ship. <laughs> immediately, the telepath on the team is taken over by someone from right. her mind. What like, a telepath we got here. Before, before we even really learn about her, it's like, guess what? She's taken over. I like that. And I like the villa comes in. Hey, Kelly, what do you think of the outfit? It's like <laughs> everyone finds the costume department on the Liberator to show everyone else off their costume. Oh, fun. It's from the fall line. Um, yeah, yeah. So she's she's taken over some. My, we we get like a, it's like a base workshop station where these two people are asleep, and then there's this little guy in a tank, like a, a shrunken person, mm-hmm. um, which oh. is which is Deep Roy, right? Uh, That's, no, no, no. Deep no, Roy not, is Deep Roy is the head decima. The the person in oh, okay, the um, okay. In the, uh, I think that's, uh, I don't think that's Richard Beale. Um, oh. I, because uh, they didn't look like Richard Beale. Might have been. Uh, Michael E. Bryant used okay. this, a similar technique in Colony in Space, his first Doctor Who story, mm-hmm. where he had this sort of like miniature creature at the head, at the part of the uh, the underground city in Colony okay. in Space, where it's just a guy's head being stuck through a wall, and then there's a a, a little model body underneath. Uh, it looked ridiculous in 1971 when he did it in Colony in Space. I'm here to tell you, it looks ridiculous in 1978 when he did it in Blake Seven. It just, it does. It's an odd, odd thing. Um, which, yeah, it's uh, it's very weird. <laughs> it's a weird look. I don't think that has aged very well at all. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I was like, I figure I'm like, is that where he's at? It didn't sound like him, but I was like, no, yeah. no. Deep Roy is because uh, he comes he, back in Blake Seven, right? He's in another. Deep, yeah, Deep Roy appears on screen in season two in Gambit. Gambit, as the, oh as the yeah, clute, Gambit as the clute. Uh, yep, yep, so that's yep. Deep Roy. Um, uh, so no, I, th- I think it was Sam- Samon who was uh, Richard Beale, but uh, for some reason it didn't remind. It didn't look like Richard Beale to me because I know I know what he looks like from playing uh, Bat Masterson in the Gunfighters, but uh, but I guess that was him. I just didn't recognize him. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So there's that sort of creepiness going on. Yeah, and. Um, you know, taking over people of the ship. Um, there's a uh, <laughs> for, first Callie and then Jenna with their weird, yeah, weird stare. Basically, she's 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 looked at the script for this week and just go, <laughs> put the lines down there. Yeah, and uh, I'll read them. Uh, but yeah, we. I, I also have that um, that Michael E. Bryant has a Callie cam during this, where they kind of put in position of her mind control. It feels yeah. like you definitely feel somebody with a sense of visions directing this episode compared to some of the more traditional stuff in the previous episodes. I agree. I mean, he is a great visionary director apart from the, uh, the, the ill choice on the, uh, on representing the sort of the, the, the brain creature on the yeah. planet and other aspects that I'm sure we'll get into. I, I, there is some sort of cinematic, uh, uh, use there. There's a lot of dissolves too. He sort of like dissolves in between scenes and stuff. Mm-hmm. As you say, like they must come to us and sort of like slow dissolves on, on sort of parts of the, of the building and stuff. I thought that's kind of, that was really well done. I thought it was very artistically done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, yeah. I, I liked, I, yeah, I felt something, you know, watching it. He, he gets a good, um, a mood in this episode too. Uh, I, I really like, maybe that's part of, maybe it's because there's a lot of film sequences yep. that show up in here too. And those definitely, as I've mentioned before, I, I tend to love it when the, uh, the contrast in, in BBC and ITV television shows between like the video and film, um, mm-hmm. always gets me. I'm always like, Oh, this is neat. When it goes to film, things get serious and creepy looking for no reason. Um, <laughs> but, uh, just kind of a, a thing. Um, I did, I find it funny. There was a uh, 
was it Zen says uh, like navigation computers have changed to theoretical projection. <laughs> <laughs> Say we look over here, maybe. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was a. I don't know if it was intentional humor, but I I gotta cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There should be a planet here, but we'll we'll keep going. Yeah. Computers de- uh, develop, you know, basically in the land of maybe. It's like, ah, it could mm-hmm. be. Let's just be be a little less, you know, a little more vague when it comes to being a computer. Yeah. That's hilarious. And, and the, the um, also some unintentional humor too. Uh, when they find out, they figure out Callie's possessed by something. Jenna just goes over and like shakes her head and it's like, whoever you are, it's over. <laughs> and she goes, thank you, Jenna, and. That's it. That was it. There she we go. It. Fixed it. Well done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was just. Oh man, it was it was kind of funny there. But um, yeah, they have to go down below this thing that keeps calling them with the with the web the, the web planet. <laughs> yeah, we'll call it, call it the web planet. The web Why planet. not? The ship Why gets not? the Liberator gets stuck in a space web, and they have to go down. And you know, there's a part. Oh, what the like, Avon saves Blake some point here um and he also mentions uh when blake's headed down to the planet and stuff um that uh even deviously says there there will come a time where he won't be making those decisions which I eerie know. foreshadowing i know if there, you know there anything are some, about blake seven uh, <laughs> eerie foreshadowing there are some great bits in uh in avon's uh character i think it's this mm-hmm. one i don't take notes for these so i like and i watched all three at the same time so yeah uh, if this is for last week's episode apologies if it's for next week's episode apologies but i think i'm pretty pretty sure it's from this one where Avon, yeah as you say saves blake because there's like some explosive device being put on there mm-hmm. and he and sort of warns about it and pulls him away and stuff and then later on when they have to fly through like a very specific uh point of the web or something uh and Avon goes uh that you know it'll we have barely any room. It'll be really tough to, you know, to do that. And they go, and and Blake goes, and you better get it right. And Ava just sort of looks up, and as Blake walks off, he goes, "Let's go." You know, he he <laughs> yeah. re, he respected his authority and his forthrightness to mm-hmm. do it right. To think, okay, you've just challenged me. Well, I'll get it right then. You know, like for there's an interesting relationship where where Avon is very much he doesn't want to be second fiddle to Blake. He feels mm-hmm. that that Blake has just sort of inherited the leadership without really you know having been taken for a vote or anything like that. And yet he respected that authority and his decision making in that moment. And I thought that was a really good Avon moment. Yeah, it's a nice touch. Definitely actor wise, um, yeah, wise, yeah, because I mean, it's probably a lot on Paul Darrow how he plays that scene. You know, that's it is. You know, and uh, and I mean, Avon becomes uh, a, a one of everyone's favorite favorite characters on the show for, for obvious reasons. He's he's amazing because he's allowed to be that sort of anti-hero. Uh, but it wouldn't work if he didn't have Blake to sort of push against, to sort of being that forthright, straightforward kind of Robin Hood figure where he's not boring, but he's, you know, he's predictable and reliable. And thus, Avon can be a contrast to that because you yeah. see what the contrast right next to him. And uh, and it's because bo- both of them work very well together, I think, because they're, they're very much opposites. Yeah, it's kind of something that goes, well, not to go too far down the road but that right. becomes a missing element um but yeah um so yeah there's this web and they can't get through it because it every time they destroy the web it um knits itself up again mm-hmm. um and 
then they go down to the planet. There are these creatures that are called decimas that yeah. they're like they're look like a white muddy leaves <laughs> covered thing <laughs> and they right. speak Jawa like weird language. I mean, you know, they're they're an alien race, good, they're, good for them, but like they're, they're a really annoying sounding race yeah. with their ways. And then they sort of look, there's one moment and location where they sort of look up and he's like, it's crying and stuff. And it's like, it's so, it's, I laughed. I hate to admit it. I yeah. laughed at this supposedly poignant moment because it was just, uh, it's kind of hitting me over the head. These, these poor creatures are, you know, are, <laughs> are being downtrodden by this we'll strange get, bubble on the planet. We'll get to it in a little bit, but there's a like, I probably not by design, but almost like nightmare inducing horrific moment from these things. Later on, <laughs> for me at least. Um, but they also, their back spine, when I got to look at it, I almost get like, almost feels Zygon like looking like like a white Zygon from the back. A little bit. A yeah, little a little bit. Because mm-hmm. they kind of got that star looking shape mm-hmm. to them. But yeah. Uh, but Blake gets grazed on the hand by a spear with blood. Yeah. Blood. Uh oh. Hope the kids aren't watching. Yeah, he, he he sort of reacts to it like, you know, like, oh, that's mildly inconvenient, this mm-hmm. massive gash on his hand. Like, he just sort of goes, like, he doesn't react with pain that much. And then it gets healed later on in this amazing sort of, like... Fungicide. You know, this fungicide, like this little thing that you would, you know, make a base of kombucha with, uh, gets put on his <laughs> hand, and, like, within minutes it's healed. Like, oh, it's... And it's dead. And they just scrape... She just scrapes it off on the floor. So it's just, like... Only for small wounds. Yep. Yep. Yep, can't decapitation will not heal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the the people that heal them are Novara and Gila, and they they kill a decima, and yeah. they they made the web. They're they're the people that were in this base with the little uh, aquarium guy. That um, so we go in and we learned more from them that they are mm-hmm. manufactured life forms, uh, and. They manufactured the decimas, so it's manufactured life forms manufacturing life forms. Yeah, basically, which we're all manufactured somehow. <laughs> man, I think yeah, that's the the deep, the deep level of like you know, man. Some way we man machines manufacture machines, man. But who manufactured <laughs> machines? We did. So who manufactured us? Yeah, yeah. That's the. <laughs> That's the conversation going around in the Blake Seven writers' room, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, just the uh, maybe the deep, the deep. Uh, you know, they have deep Roy. We have deep thoughts. Um, <laughs> but the, meanwhile, in the space, though, the Federation's found them stuck in the web. Uh, right, they're, they're coming, um, and we get a name for the little aquarium guy, Samon, the controller. Yep, uh, he keeps possessing people, um, and he's all like. He's all six members of this lost council people in one mind, and he controls Novara and he, Gila aren't really people themselves. He's fully controlling them. Is am I getting that right? From I, what I, I understand. I think so. It's uh, it's it's a little bit. There's a lot of exposition in this episode where it's just people talking to each other essentially to explain what's going on. So uh, science fiction, it, science fiction, <laughs> yeah, science exposition, very much, very much a lot of that in this one. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, we have to kill the Decimas. You know, that's what we do. And Blake's like, nope, I'm not not into that. 
Like, because there's um, power cells that there's a negotiation. In the background, there's like, they want these power cells. I actually thought the power cells were down at one point in the episode already. They weren't. Because uh-huh. they were talking about him. Okay. And I was like, oh, wait. Nope. They didn't. And, uh, people come down and they. Because I think Avon comes. Does Avon come down with the power cells? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He comes down with the power cells. Uh, they try to negotiate stuff. And he like hides them in the grass. And he's like, oh, you can't have them. And they're like, well, tough, tough shit or whatever. And then they're like, okay. <laughs> and he's like, fine. Here they are. Yeah, they are. Fine. You got me. It All right. It lasts like a whole like 30 seconds. It's. Of it's <laughs> It's exactly. There's not a lot of cat and mouse going on there, is there? No, I was like, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna play hardball. Nope, nope. Blake caves really instantly, but yeah. Um, so then the the decimas end up overtaking. They let him overtake the base, and this is what I'm talking about. This is this creepy, unsettling chaos because <laughs> it really is. There's remains of the bodies of Navara and Gila <laughs> that right. are like oh. skulls with like purple blood coming off of <laughs> yeah, them. It's so gruesome. And I don't think there's, I can't tell, I can't remember. Is there score during this? Because I think it's score. Oh, no. It's kind of, it's just, it's just or, the constant noise of the decimas yelling and, and, and screaming. Stuff for, and smashing stuff. They just come in and just trash the place. And it, it goes on for like two and a half, three minutes. It's, yeah, it's, it's creepy. It's like, an epic amount of. If you know what they sound like, it's because yeah. ext- it's irritating. But they look weird. It's creepy. And if you had this on like a loop and like sat someone <laughs> in a chair, it's chaos, man. Or like <laughs> fed him like a, a hit of acid and made him watch. They would not be the same person after watching that. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh! Like it is just like it's nightmare fuel. Like that. I weird enough. It's just because it's weird. There's no scenes to cut in. It's no. just them. You'd think they'd have like, you know, Roj like watching through a window being like, this is what manufacturing manufacturers do. When you're, yeah. you're manufa- you the manu or the, you know, the whatever, the manu- the son kills the father or some BS like that. You'd think there'd be some line or something. Nope. No. Nope. <laughs> just watching them. Chaos. Come in. It's it's actually interesting because speaking of Robots of Death, which was uh, Michael E. Bryant's previous production, I think probably mm-hmm. pretty close to this. Um, with Chris Boucher. With Chris Boucher as well written. Um, and uh, and there's a, I think there's a similar scene because in, in this episode, there's like the window and you sort of see the silhouette of one of the decimas against the window sort of thing before, yeah, before yeah, they yeah, all yeah. break in. It's very, it very much reminded me of a scene in Robots of Death where there's one of the robots who's basically against the wall, and you see the silhouette as Chief Mover mm-hmm. Pool sort of has a breakdown because he's got like robophobia and stuff. Very, very similar visual visual imagery from the same director. Probably not a mistake on that one, I think, or a coincidence, I should say. Right. Yeah. Um, robots of Death, which um, had Pamela Salem, who was in a couple episodes ago. Yeah. For yeah crazy enough mm-hmm. that's a yeah there's there's a there's a there's a lot of crossover between the, the robots of death and, and blake seven uh, later on in big finish audio i think too which oddly enough so yeah there's there, there's they seem to be coming from the same the same gene pool the same productive gene pool both the directors and actors and inspiration perhaps too it's it's fascinating well wait mm-hmm. and Brian Croucher later joins Blake Seven. Of course, right. he does That's too. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it all I comes know. back to robots of death. Robots of death. Oh, so good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, um, there's a line at the end, like uh, where we end, where 
I'll tell you a fact of life. Change is inevitable. <laughs> and uh, whereas we fight, Avon. Got some. Yeah. What did we learn? I don't know. That's that's why these two episodes feel like, like I mentioned in the last episode, it just sort of felt like Blake Seven was already kind of treading water. And it almost felt like this is like, is this what Blake Seven wants to do? Like, you know, they're they're running from another faceless Federation Mm -hmm. patrol. We only we don't even see them. We don't even see the ships really. We don't even see obviously we don't see the people in them. They're just like random unseen threat and there's no real oomph to it and they're just basically a reason why they have to get out of the web they're you know it's it's basically the countdown um mm-hmm. to to doom and uh and i feel like this this episode and the one previous are like this weird two uh, episode arc where the series feels kind of rudderless and out of ideas uh but thankfully that is all about to change next right week, no exactly like last week at least had well we picked up Callie. Yeah. this one had more to it than last week but technically yeah technically it, it did <laughs> this could have been a good generic episode if it maybe had like a couple more weeks of planning and mm-hmm. figuring out what they had and I, I don't know what they were trying to show here but this you know definitely fills in in a an American show at this time, when you had like twenty five episodes in a season, uh-huh. this would be fine. But this is the you know British model of really distinct um, serialized storytelling. That's like, eh, what's I mean, not that they don't have filler episodes, but we're just no. kicking off, and it's like, oh, this because this, this at this point we're here, and it's like, oh, is this what the show's gonna be? Just you know. The, you know, the Incredible Hulk going from town to town, random you know? adventures in space. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's, is, there's not there's not much direction at this point. Early, even early on. Yeah, it set itself up to be something else, and now, oh, we're back to you know, you're either Star Trek exploring space or you're ex- escaping, running away from something in space. And yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, it's very, very iffy. Like you could be like, ah, oh, well, I'm checked out. This show's going to be this. Okay. Which gotta hold on, gotta hold on. Yeah, uh, but I do. Well, a side note, I would have mentioned too. I seem to have this love and affinity for um, winter-based science fiction space opera clothing. I I can't tell you <laughs> right. why, but I'm always like, oh, I'd love to have that jacket. Like Empire oh. Strike, Empire Strikes Back, Wrath of Khan, uh, even Space 1999 had like right. winter versions, coat versions of their outfits that they would go to colder planets on. And I'm just it's, always like, I always uh, like it. I was thinking that I think like I would wear that hoodie. I would wear the Blake Seven hoodie uh, out and about on a, on a nice, cool, crisp fall day uh, because that looks kind of cozy and warm. Yeah, uh, and they all sort of have them, which is kind of cool. Right? Yeah, and like because like people would be like, you know, there's the drool how like Princess Leia in the uh, Jabba's palace outfit. Ooh, I'm like, um, uh, is my favorite Leia look. <laughs> yeah, it's I a good don't look. know why. Yeah, it's I, a good look. It's a good whatever, look. Whatever. Yeah. Like I don't. So that's where I stand, and I, I like like the the Rebel Alliance uniforms when they're puffy and the, the colder. Yeah, I and the the when um, Rathacon where they go off and they're wearing the uh, the puffy coat versions of the Starfleet uniforms. I, right. I, yeah. I yeah. Like those. I like those are cool too. I don't know what mm-hmm. it is. Winter sci-fi and me. Yeah, no, I understand it because there's there's more to work with when it comes to designing uh, costumes that can be worn in winter uh, mm-hmm. that are, you know, you can both be cosplaying and be practical 
for a cold Canadian winter for me. Yep. That's why I, yeah, I wear a, in the winter, like I wear a uh, <laughs> Tom Baker coat uh, uh-huh. and it's the red one. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, it's it's very comfy in in mm-hmm. all winter and I get a lot of compliments on it. Like, that's a really nice coat. I'm like, if you knew where it was from, you would probably <laughs> think less of it, but thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not that it's not cool, but I'm like, you'd probably be like, oh, that's weird, but it works out in public regularly, so... There you go. Uh, but yeah, that's it for this one. Um, so Stephen, set our course again for Earth. But before we give it to the Federation, where can people keep up with you? Share your information. Okay, you can find me on Twitter at Legopolis and on Radio Free Scarrow and Lazy Doctor Who and the Memory Cheats. All right. Uh, hashtag Fungicide. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at BreadPorkyUHD. Written work at YSOBlue.com. There is more for the Brandon Peters Show I believe next, so uh, we'll be back. It'll be back Monday next week uh, with the commentary for Air Force One that was recorded in July on Out Now with Aaron and Abe. As I'm running through some uh, comedy or comedy commentary, uh, film commentary episodes from that right now while I'm taking a little bit of a break. Uh, but you get old, new old space, new old space show episodes um, every week. So come back for Stephen and I next week. Uh, but from old space. If it takes all my life, I will destroy you, Blink. I will destroy you. I will destroy you. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Osman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetersshow.com. show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. <laughs>